People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Today we're joined by the co-authors of Your Brain on Art, Ivy Ross and Susan Maximin. Ivy is the Vice President of Design for Hardware Products at Google. And Susan is the founder and director of the International Arts and Mind Lab Center for Applied Neuroaesthetics at the Peterson Brain Science Institute of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Both of them are brilliant and have written about this new field of neuroaesthetics. Ivy and Susan, welcome to Health Gig. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you so much. Tricia and I have really been looking forward to this interview because we love your work, but we want to begin the conversation with a little bit about you and your families and how you found each other. Susan, do you want to tell how you found me? Yeah. I'll I'll say (laughs) how I fell in love with you. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. So it's a stalking story, in fairness. At my lab at Johns Hopkins, we have something called luminary scholars. And these are people who just do really extraordinary things in the world in lots of different sectors. But the intersection is that they are really doing things that bring arts and aesthetics into the world. It could be in consumer products or in performing arts. could also be in healthcare education. And I had known of Ivy's work for, gosh, probably 25 years. I had started a company called Curiosity Kits that made hands-on learning materials for kids in arts, sciences, and world cultures. And Ivy had been at Mattel running the girls' division. And so I had known about her work then and just thought she had done some super innovative work in thinking about the role of play for girls. Fast forward many, many years, and Ivy moving to lots of different places, me moving through the work at Hopkins, and had said, you know, I'd like to check out what Ivy Ross is doing. So when I looked her up, I saw that she was designing hardware at Google. So not knowing her or knowing anybody that did know Ivy, I linked in her in a kind of a cold call and said, I'm doing this work, and I really would love to talk to you. I feel like you might be interested in this. And she said, yes kind of amazingly, immediately, we decided to schedule a 30-minute phone call that ended up being almost three hours. And I'll turn it over to Ivy because it was love at first sight for me. (laughs) (laughs) I had about 300 LinkedIn invites and I usually go delete, delete, delete. And I see this one that says the Arts and Mind Lab at Johns Hopkins. And I'm like, wow, what is that? And I said, accept. And as Susan says, when she got on the phone with me, she said, you know, neuroscience is now proving that the arts and aesthetics change your brain and your biology. And I said, well, I know that. That's why I do the work I do. And she said, well, now we're proving it. And I thought, this is fantastic. And so she and her husband flew to San Francisco. We had dinner at my house. It was fantastic. And we created a salon in my home. She said, let's get a dialogue going between neuroscientists and people in the arts. And so it was like Noah's Ark. We curated, you know, two visual artists, two dancers, two digital artists. And she brought her neuroscientists in from Johns Hopkins. And we had this amazing afternoon at my home. And afterwards, it was so fruitful. She looked at me and said, I've always wanted to write a book on this. Do you want to join me? And I said, this is the book I've been waiting for. My whole life, I've been approached to write books on creativity, innovation, and 
for me, I, I don't want to do anything that isn't a learning journey. And those things I know a lot about, I live and breathe it. But this was kind of the culmination of everything I care about. And so it's been a like three or four year journey of just writing and creating this book. And it's been wonderful. And we've talked to over 100 people. So it's been when Ivy says a journey, it has been quite a journey all over the world. So the book is Your Brain on Art, and it talks about neuroaesthetics. So tell us what that is. The term is such a sort of awesomely big word. Ivy and I call it neuroarts as a field, and it's really the study of how the arts and aesthetic experiences measurably change your brain, body, and behavior, and importantly, how that knowledge can be translated into practices that advance health, well-being, learning, flourishing, community development. And it's a field that's been really growing quite a bit over the last 10 years, in large part because of the ability of technology to help us get inside our heads and really understand understand the extraordinary ways that the arts impact us. And so when you talk about the arts, you talk about man-made arts, but you talk about nature as well. Yeah, well, nature is actually the most neuroaesthetic place there is. And you know that is our true nature. That's where we came from. And it's the most neuroaesthetic because it is sound, light, shape, texture, temperature. So that environment, it alivens all of our senses. And that's really what the aesthetics do, is they aliven our senses and make us feel alive and actually keep us alive. Nature is the most neuroaesthetic, but when we talk about the arts, we're talking about theater, poetry, visual arts, dancing, writing, architecture, because space changes the way we think. So it's not just big word art with a capital A, it is all of the arts disciplines. We've been focused on productivity as opposed to how art impacts our health. So talk about that. Yeah, I mean, we've been focused on productivity since the Industrial Revolution, thinking that would make us happy and healthy. And we pushed the arts aside because of that. And I think the experiment is showing that it failed. And Susan and I went back and looked at indigenous tribes, of which there's still 500 of them, And they didn't even have a word for art because storytelling, dance, graphics, that was their culture. That was the way they lived. And I think it's time that we go a little backwards in order to move forward. That makes so much sense. So what are all the benefits as you've studied all of this, you're scientists, what are the benefits of neural arts? Well, I like to say that when I think about this field, I think about an elephant And depending upon where you touch it, you get something very different. And I think it's really extraordinary. You know, elephants are ancient, they're big, and they're really old. And I think what Ivy was saying is really true is that, you know, historically, our ancestors relied on these neurobiological truths about how we bring the world in through our senses and how, you know, we're born with a hundred billion neurons. And those neurons connect through a process called neuroplasticity. So at a synaptic level, we create neural pathways. And those pathways help to build our brains. Basically, everything we do, our movements, our memory, our moods, our emotion, all of the skills that we have come from this ability to create these very salient and complex neural pathways. When you think about the arts and you say, what can they do for us? We've organized the book in a couple of different categories. One is just straight up mental well-being. How do we live in our most stress-free, 
anxiety-free lives? How do we really navigate the twists and turns of our lives? And what are some of the ways that different types of art forms can do that? And I'll tell you about that in a second. Then we looked at serious mental illness and trauma and PTSD, where we all throughout our lives will have trauma, but sometimes we have micro traumas. And how can we address those? Then we looked at physical health, learning, community engagement, and then flourishing, because we just don't want to cope. We want to live. We want to amplify our potential. And then the book also talks about the arts of the future and what is coming in the near term. I loved reading about flourishing and how flourishing is like a muscle and that it can get stronger when you use it. Describe how that works if you are engaged in the arts and how all of that can be like a muscle. Maybe I'll start and Ivy can jump in. We have what we call in the book an aesthetic mindset. We all have the capacity to live at this sort of higher level. So that includes things like curiosity, being able to playfully explore the world, think about the ways that our sensory experiences touch us, and also how we make and behold. This idea of building muscle around flourishing kind of breaks down into six foundational attributes, curiosity and wonder, awe, enriched environments, creativity, ritual, novelty, and surprise. And throughout that chapter, we talk about that. You know, How do we really allow ourselves to open up to the idea that these are the ways that we actually can flourish? The great thing is you do not have to be good at the arts for it to have a great benefit for you. You know, I think a lot of people stopped engaging in the arts from when they were children because they were told they weren't good at something or there's a lot of self-judgment. And to get the benefit, you can be drawing stick figures or rainbows or as an adult, even coloring in a coloring book to get the benefit for your brain and body. So that's the exciting thing is that we're really hoping that people will understand that just like science proved to us that exercise 20 minutes a day is super important and sleeping eight hours a day is super important. You know, we even found out that 20 minutes of doing some art practice is incredibly helpful for our health and well-being. And it's not about money. It's not about going to the most expensive concerts, as Ivy's pointing out. You can hum in the shower. You can doodle. You don't have to be good at it. You can sing to the radio, right? You can dance in your living room. And so I think it's also important, this idea of agency, that these are things that are available to you that you have control over, whether you're the maker or the beholder. And this idea of agency comes up again and again throughout the book is that you can activate this. You can do these small things that make a big difference. I have such a good example of this for you. And also the idea that you can learn arts as you're older, right? You don't have to have done painting as a child to take it up as an adult. Well, my brother, I don't know if you know, is George W. Bush. So he was president of the United States, as you know. When he finished being president, he wasn't quite sure how to spend his time. He had his time in office. He wasn't going to be one of those presidents that second-guessed the next president. He wanted to let them do their job. And so he took up painting. And literally, he had never, well, when he was in the White House, he had masterpieces on the walls. He never even looked at them. But after he became president, he took a course at MoMA. He started doodling. And then he became a painter. 
he's now been painting for maybe 10 years and I'll never forget. I was at my mom's house and he called and he said, well, I've become a painter. And my mom and I laughed, which wasn't very nice. But we said, send us some paintings. And so he sent over these melons and my mom was like, oh, wow. Okay. He's got a long way to go. But he's been painting for all these years. And he says when he goes into the art studio, five hours feels like five minutes. Yeah. Well, you get lost in this flow state where time dissipates when you're doing a creative act. And it's like you are able to give your brain, you go into a different phase. I mean, Susan can speak about it. And it's great to hear that story, by the way. I did not know that about George Bush. <laughs> I did. I Actually, he's a fantastic portraiturist, right? Yes, he's done some amazing... Yes. And, and what he does, just to take it one step further, is his work is really about the essence of a person. And I think it made me understand your brother better by understanding his art. I can tell you a really funny story. One night I came in, I, I'm a collager. I always say I'm the poster child for this field because I don't make any art well, but I make art all the time. And I brought a piece of collage in and I showed it to my husband and I said, this is what I just made. And he said, it looks like a four-year-old made that. And my feelings were really, really hurt, really hurt. So I was like, all right, fine. So the next morning I came over with a pad of paper and some pens. And I said, all right, you draw something. I'm going to draw something. And then you're going to tell me what you drew. So he drew an eyeball with a circle or going around in a spiral and then a question mark in the middle. And I said, tell me what this is. And he said, I never would have thought this, but this is how I see science. I look at it. I try to figure out all the things that are happening because I need to answer that question that's right in the middle. And so for me, I got to understand his field, he's a neuroscientist, of how he really approached his work. And I would never have understood it in the way he was describing it. And then I drew something that was about curiosity and I could explain it to him because he's always like, you do so many things, I don't understand what you do. He was able to understand me at a level. And that's what I've seen in your brother's work is that he couldn't tell you that, but he could show it to you. And I think that's another beyond words, what the arts can do for the maker and the beholder. Ivy, what do you do creatively? Well, I started as a metalsmith. My work is in like 12 museums around the world. So I'm a maker. And now I've been doing product design in many different companies, but I'll always be a maker. I mean, I, I draw while I'm in meetings. You know, the things our hands were slapped in school, not to draw or doodle. I'm so glad that Susan reinforced that, no, it actually makes your brain focus better. And I've taken painting classes. You know, the great thing about the internet is how accessible some of these classes are. And I think that came up even during COVID. I mean, people really started engaging in many different classes online, even dance classes. So it's been wonderful in that regard. You know, I will change disciplines and explore new disciplines because it's very exciting. Ivy took singing lessons. Oh, yes, I did. I did at one point. Yeah. yeah. I want to take singing lessons. This is what I do. I'm just showing you. I don't know if you can see it. Needlepoint. Needlepoint. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Needlepoint. My mom used to do needlepoint, so I never did it because she was so good at it. I'm like, oh. But she taught me when I was younger. And then when she died, all my nieces and nephews, she would make Christmas stockings for their children. And so they came to me and asked me to do it. And so now that's what I do. 
Oh, good. So you took over that position. That's great. Yeah, no, yes. I, I, my grandmother taught me needlepoint. I did it when I was like 12 or 13. I, instead of going on dates when I was 16, I actually preferred to sit in my room and do needlepoint. And now I realize because it would get me in this zone that was almost like meditative. Yeah, it's rhythmic. It's it's rhythmic. And, you know, you speak about rhythm. We found out that, isn't it, Susan, the same centers in your brain, poetry and music Mm -hmm. gets the same centers of your brain. So that it is that rhythmic repetition that is really good for us in a lot of these arts. And the use of your hands, you know, for actually lowering cortisol. It turns out that these handcrafts are really good for stress and anxiety. And in my family, my grandmother made granny slippers and my mother took them over when she passed away. And now I've got a bag back here to be able to start (laughs) making granny slippers. And my grandmother would bring green trash bags full of granny slippers, like 50, 60 pairs of granny slippers. And we'd give them out to all of our friends and family. And what I learned is that it takes two hours to make a pair of granny slippers. So she literally spent thousands of hours, probably like your mom, needlepoint. And and it brought a lot of peace to her and probably brought a lot of peace to you and your mom too. But we're also hearing that women in colleges are creating knitting circles now, which is a beautiful thing, I think, you know, because of the anxiety and stress, but also the community. It's a way to gather together and have conversations while you're in that de-stressed mode of moving your hands. So talk about saliency and how that impacts our biology. So saliency is a term that's used in neuroscience to help to explain how and why something is important to you. You know, you can't pay attention to everything. You have so many sensorial stimuli coming into your body all the time. And those senses trigger feelings that trigger emotions that figure thinking. And so your brain has to filter out inputs that your brain doesn't think is important so that you can focus on the things that are important. And so something that is salient to you is something that's either important to you for practical or emotional reasons. Researchers have been discovering that highly salient experiences like arts and aesthetics actually help to build new synaptic connections. These synaptic connections, as I was mentioning earlier, are how that we store knowledge and how we actually can retrieve information. And these salient networks, these salient experiences turn out to be as unique as your fingerprint. So no one has the same brain as you because of the way that you choose to bring the world into your body and how that work gets processed, how those experiences get processed. And the great thing is that your brain also prunes out to make room for these new experiences, some of the old connections. So we're actually you know, rewiring our brain the more new salient experiences we have, which is why it's so great to put yourself making new things or having new experiences or going to a museum and being faced with something that you have never seen before because your brain will literally make those connections if it's meaningful to you and prune out the old ones. When you are suffering from some kind of mental illness, is that because you don't have the capacity to prune out the negative things? A serious mental illness is super complicated, and there's a lot of reasons why someone might have bipolar disorder or schizophrenia, and it's definitely not as simple as the ability to not be able to prune. I wish I wish yeah. it were. You know, there's also genetic components to that. There could be early adverse trauma. You know, there could be neglect or abuse. And so, you know, these kinds of illnesses are really complicated. But in terms of thinking about child development, 
the use of the arts for practice and for well-being and also for different types of intervention. I'll tell you just a couple quick stories. We know that young children that have arts experiences at home and in school build significant neural pathways that actually help them with resiliency later in life. We also know that people that are experiencing loneliness and isolation who have art experiences tend to have better physical health. We also know that things like chronic pain can be managed through experiences like dance and virtual reality. Even the ability for moms with postpartum depression are now being studied in um, Norway, and this work is being shared all over Europe, where singing and humming for moms with postpartum depression with their children is making them feel better faster and also not having to take sometimes antidepressants at all or, or less medication. There's some really very specific outcomes that we're seeing by the use of arts for mental distress and some of the sort of ongoing things that really create great pain for us. That's so encouraging. There's a researcher in Texas named James Pennebaker who's done a lot of work in expressive writing for 25, 30 years. And what he has seen that the ability to write down how you're feeling and sometimes even sharing something that you haven't shared with someone else a secret helps to lower what's called cognitive load. So lightens your load, makes you feel better. And in that case, oftentimes people that are sharing information in an expressive writing way may never share it with anybody else, but it helps them feel better. Just a simple app of writing something down. Talk about the digital arts and how that factors into what you all are studying. For example, the digital arts has been used. There's a, a game for children with ADHD that actually enables them to spend more time concentrating. There has been VR headset with a program for burn patients who are in tremendous pain. But in the VR headset, they're in a cold setting in Alaska with penguins and literally their brain takes the pain away because the body thinks it's in a cold situation. So those are you know two examples where VR or the digital world is helping, as well as, like I mentioned earlier, connecting people through the arts or teaching people. There was during COVID, dancing for Parkinson's, people from all over the world were able to dance together online because of the internet. So there's yeah. a lot of uses of digital arts, VR, AR, that are truly helpful. What are some of the surprising examples of aesthetic experiences that we would have easy access to? Ivy mentioned the one that I actually really love, which is that you don't have to be talented or graded in art to have significant impact. You know, historically, I think we've been told that you can't make art if you're not good at it. And releasing us from that mythology, I think, is really important. We also know that as little as 20 minutes of low-tech, high-touch arts can reduce cortisol and increase homeostasis. And this idea around 20 minutes you know, of some kind of art form can make such a big difference. In the book, we talk to first responders who are doing things as simple as woodworking and welding and, and painting, doodling, that really helps with PTSD and ongoing trauma. Clay is another incredible art form that actually allows us to have the same level of dexterity in our hands when we're using it. Working with clay has certainly many psychological benefits, like reducing negative mood and anxiety, but also it releases serotonin. So it actually helps us 
feel better and lifts our spirits as we're working with something as simple as clay. And it's one of the only art forms, when you think about it, that uses both hands. And so it's actually using your conscious and unconscious, and that's another reason it's good for your brain. Susan and I did an exercise once just for a couple of hours, literally with a friend of ours, working, playing with the clay and just letting your hands come up with whatever shapes or forms it wants to. Again, no judgment. The key here is you don't even have to have the intention of making something. It's the act of doing that's super helpful. I'll add a couple of other things that surprised us. You know, when we were looking at some of the learning work, what we saw is that people that practice music actually can increase brain mass and synaptics increases. And that's extraordinary, the act of playing music. And that we also saw that enriched environments changed brain structure. In a study in the 60s, Marion Diamond, who was a neuroscientist, saw that by exposing, in this case, rats to really highly enriched environments, their cerebral cortex brain mass increased by 6%. So you think about the environments that we're in and how they can have such an amazing effect on us. An epidemiologist we talked with also shared some of her findings about just the fact that one or more art experience a month can extend your life by 10 years. That's pretty extraordinary. So enriched environment means surrounding yourself with art or spending more time doing art? Or what do you mean by that? So enriched environments can be very simple. It can be as simple as being in nature. It can be as simple as quieting down the sound around you. It might be thinking about color or the way light enters a space for you. It could be about scent. So enriched environments, again, don't have to be about going to a museum or having expensive things, but creating environments that feel safe and comfortable and that allow you to be able to experiment and feel like you can express yourself. You know, Susan and I, together with Google's support, did an exhibition, which was really the first time that the public got to experience what neuroaesthetics is about. What we did is, it reminded me when you're talking about enriched environments, we had three different living room situations, each one totally different textures, colors, music, scent, artwork, books. And they were very much designed to be very different from each other with different scents and colors and textures. We created a band that people, when they came through the experience, put on their wrist, which Susan's lab and Google had created an algorithm that was taking in your physiology and was able to determine in which space was your body, not your mind, which I'll talk about in a minute, the most at home or at ease, meaning the least stressed. So we asked people to go through each room and only about 10 people in the room at a time No technology, no talking, just be in the space, smell the scent, touch the textures, take in the color, the lighting, everything was different. And then they went through another room that had gray foam that stripped them of their senses almost and stepped into the next room and then the next room. And at the end, we removed the band, it took in the data and then we deleted it, but it showed them mirrored back to the participant In each room, how was their body feeling in those five minutes? And what was amazing, and we hoped for this result, that in over 50%, I think it was 56%, the room people cognitively liked the best was not necessarily the room their body felt the best in. And people said, well, what's the right room? And we said, there is no right answer. It's what's right for your body. And so 
the exercise was merely to show that we are embodied beings and that we think we're thinking beings, but we're actually feeling beings and that our body is feeling all the time. And so if we can understand that, you know, because in some cases, people walked into a room and thought, oh, I've seen this color in a magazine. I like it. And their mind is liking it. But their body, for some reason, you know, isn't feeling at ease in that space. There's a quote that Julie Bolte Taylor has said that we think we're thinking beings that feel, but we're actually feeling beings that learned how to think. And when you kind of turn that upside down like that, I remember when I first understood that, you do pay, just by paying more attention to what those aesthetics are that you're taking in. And aesthetics, some people think, is about making something look pretty. That's not really what it is. Aesthetics is all of those sensorial things, sound, color, taste, smell. So by just being aware of that, trying a different scent in your home each day and kind of see how you feel in it. Yeah. Yeah, it's an exciting idea. I had that experience recently. I was in Mexico City in a hotel and I still think back on how beautiful it smelled and how I felt when I was in there. But my sister-in-law really didn't like it at all. But I was like, isn't this lovely? Doesn't it smell so nice? And to your point that we're all bio-individual. And I guess what you're saying is the trick is finding what feels best for you and enhancing your environment in absolutely, that way. Absolutely. And like Susan said, it doesn't have to cost a lot of money. It can be very simple things. And we have agency over what we surround ourselves with. So there's that. And then there is no right answer for what, quote unquote, art form or art practice you should be doing. So it's almost playing with it. Play with crayons one day and then play with you know singing as you work. Try these things on. There are some people in under-resourced communities that maybe don't have as much access, but there are things as simple as something that you can smell or thinking about like the way that you create where you sleep. You know, there are very micro aesthetic experiences that you can create to help you feel more at ease and more comfortable in your space. And so I think those are the kinds of things uh, we talk about sensorial literacy. You know, we have digital literacy, we have literacy around reading, but we don't really talk about sensorial literacy for children or for any of us. And so how do those senses really allow us to feel all the emotions that we feel? Um, Ivy and I were talking yesterday and there's some research that's come out that we have over 34,000 emotions. That's extraordinary. So, you know, how do you navigate that? Sensorial literacy. I love that term. I've never heard it. There's everything in literacy, but have not heard sensorial literacy. Oh, we're running out of time, but I did want to ask you about the International Arts and Mind Lab and what's going on there. So the International Arts and Mind Lab is at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. It's part of the Peterson Brain Science Institute, and we are a translational lab. Well, we started, I guess, around 2008. And one of the things that we've been very fortunate is to be able to work to really think about how do you translate and create models to translate research into practice around arts and aesthetic experiences. And so we work in architecture and design because space is really so dynamic and complex. We also do a lot of work with creative youth mental health and a lot of medical applications of the arts, along with public health and education. It's just a, a really exciting time. 
this work around neuroaesthetics has really grown dramatically all over the world. And so about four years ago, we began a partnership with the Aspen Institute to put our ear to the ground and listen to researchers and arts practitioners around the world to see what they thought the field needed and what it was ready for. And we launched something called the NeuroArts Blueprint, which is now a five-year plan to really make this field a thing and develop the foundations for sustainable policy and funding. So it's a very exciting time for this work. And I just want to add that the book that Ivy and I wrote really came out of a need to bring this work to the general public, to outside of academia, outside of researchers, to be able to show how this could affect us every day in so many of the places and spaces that we inhabit. Your book is going to help so many people. I'm just honored to speak to two very brilliant women. And thank you for coming on our podcast. I think our audience is the lay audience that I think you're trying to reach. And I know they'll benefit from hearing from both of you. So thank you both and good, good luck to you. Thank you. That's music to my ears that you like the book and that you feel your audience will appreciate it. And we just want to create a movement where with all the mental health issues going on and people have things that they can do. So thank you. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well.